It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We look across the political landscape today. It sure feels like however important Iowa will be, it's going to be a blip. A week from today, it will be all about New Hampshire. Candidates will leave Iowa that night and will go to ground in the Granite State where they will stay. They will live uh, for the better part of a week here leading up to voting. We're going to be there with you through all of it. And of course, everyone thinks they know what's going to happen here, right? Of course, Donald Trump has been looking pretty comfortable in the polls, and there's been a great storyline behind the Nikki Haley campaign showing surging polling uh, in New Hampshire. And we have two competing surveys today that will satisfy everyone, depending on what you're looking for here. One of them is from uh, Suffolk University, the Boston Globe and USA Today. Nikki Haley, 20 points behind Donald Trump, 46 to 26 in New Hampshire. A lot of folks would say, a potentially insurmountable lead. But look at what CNN is talking about with the University of New Hampshire, the survey center they're at with their own poll. Shows Nikki Haley cutting into Donald Trump's lead in New Hampshire, cutting its, the lead to single digits, 39% to 32%, with Nikki Haley up a dozen points since that last poll in November. That's the storyline we've been hearing more about. And while we'll talk about this with Rick and Jeannie ahead, I wanted to talk to Chris Galderi because he's there. And we're going to talk to him when we get to New Hampshire. Of course, political scientist and professor at St. Anselm University. Chris, it's great to see you. I don't know if you're going to be uh, leaning toward one poll or the other, but I wonder if <laughs> we're getting closer to reality here. You know, we were talking mm-hmm. about national polls and a lot of pie-in-the-sky stuff six months ago. But it's about time for people to vote. What's New Hampshire think? Well, I think New Hampshire is at a point where the folks who don't pay that much attention or who are only sort of engaged with the process are actually starting to tune in. Um, And that's one of the things that makes primaries so interesting. They can be volatile because you have a lot of late deciders. Um, If you look at polling uh, from past years, there are a lot of folks who don't decide who they're going to vote for until they are getting in the car or, you know, closing the front door to go to their polling place. Um, which means stuff like Iowa is going to matter. Um, what people say in debates, what they don't say in debates, if they have uh, gaffes or inspiring moments or, or that sort of thing, um, really can lead to big shifts late in the game. Well, really interesting here. And I know that Iowa will have some level of influence. Uh, New Hampshire has its own brand here. And as they say, Iowa picks corn, New Hampshire picks presidents. But to what extent does momentum coming out of Iowa impact the results in New Hampshire? Well, I think a lot depends on what the story coming out of Iowa is. Um, Right now, a lot of folks um, are speculating that Haley may actually pass DeSantis for second place. Um, If she does that, I think that, again, contributes to this uh, narrative, the storyline that Haley is on the rise. um, And I think that um, will make uh, there be a lot of pressure for, to look at New Hampshire as essentially a two-candidate race, as between Trump and Haley. Um, mm-hmm. I think in those circumstances, we'd be having a lot of conversations. Well, what does Ron DeSantis do? What does Chris Christie do? Um, so 
you know, and think back to 1984, Gary Hart's big splash. He came out of Iowa <laughs> down to Walter <laughs> Mondale by 30 points, but yeah. he was in second place and nobody expected that. Um, so I think, you know, in, in a sense, the expectations game is, is kind of kind of goofy. Um, that's a technical term. But um, I think it can really affect what we'll be talking about and how we'll be talking about this race in that week between Iowa and New Hampshire. You think back to 2016, uh, and I remember talking to you then how different the mm -hmm. race was. Donald Trump was in New Hampshire a lot. He decided to really plant his flag there. It was town hall every other weekend. How much time has he spent there in the state? Because it's been a storyline that he's barely gone to Iowa, and it looks like he may well win the caucuses. Yeah, he has not been here a lot. Um, I think the number of events he has held in this state is in the mid single digits. I want to say like five, six, seven, something like that. Um, but it's been nothing like the on the ground presence that he had uh, eight years ago. That said, his campaign is much more professional, much more, uh, for want of a better term, normal uh, than it was in 2016. So there really is an organized uh, Trump campaign in terms of phone calls and mailers and door knocking and that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. His ads are all over TV and all over streaming. And, <laughs> you know, my, my five-year-old was watching a Minecraft video and, and got uh, Trump and Haley videos uh, during it. So, you know, they're really targeting <laughs> wow. voters there. Yeah. They're hitting uh, the Minecraft like, players. Turn this off. Yeah. That's pretty creative, I have to admit. Now it you're is. getting young it people is. where they're actually working yeah. here. And I, I was visiting family in New England, not even in New Hampshire, but in Massachusetts, knowing mm -hmm. they have to buy the Boston market. And, I mean, it's right. every other commercial. I, I can't imagine the level of exhaustion right now when it comes to the ads. Who's, who's on TV the most right now in New Hampshire, Chris? Um, I'd say it's a toss-up between Trump and Haley. I've barely mm. seen anything for DeSantis. Um, I think I've seen maybe one Christie ad. Um, but really, um, if you're just watching TV, it's it's for at least the stuff I'm watching um, looks like a two candidate race. How about that? Are you leaning towards yeah. one poll or the other here that Donald Trump is, in fact, enjoying a single digit lead, as one poll would suggest, or a 20 point spread like we're seeing in the other? You know, it, it's it's really tough. Um, I can envision either one being wow. uh, being more accurate. Um, you know, the Haley numbers aren't actually off that much between, or there's not that much difference. 26, 32 is at sort of like the mm -hmm. far end That's of the right. margin of error. Um, what I think might is, is more interesting is you have one poll where Trump is under 40. If Trump is under 40 on primary night, um, we're going to be talking about how much he underperformed, mm -hmm. why wasn't he able to close the deal here, that sort of thing. If he's coming in 46%, we'll say, wow, he's nearly at 50%. It, it, if, if there's an anti-Trump coalition, it didn't show up tonight. Um, so I, I think, you know, depending on which one of these is closer to what we get uh two i think two weeks from tonight two weeks from tonight mm -hmm. um it sure you know, is. we'll be having really different conversations about the race yeah um i understood and that's what is uh, what's just incredible about this stage of the race mm -hmm. and, and and knowing that this could go in a couple of different directions here uh likely in the next couple of weeks chris last time we were there 2020 uh, mm -hmm. it was of course the democrats we were really talking about here and i'll never forget uh, talking with Joe Biden, who was said to be on the verge of dropping out of the race. It was supposed to be an exit interview. And what happened between New Hampshire and South Carolina was remarkable, as just one candidate after the other dropped out of the race. Are we going to see something like that? Not that there are that many left. Uh, what happens to this field after New Hampshire? Or could something happen before New Hampshire? Could Chris Sununu, for instance, talk Chris Christie into dropping out of this race? That's a great question. Um, I, I think, you know, 
with Christy, I, I'm, the vibe I get uh, is that he's attracting the really dedicated anti-Trump voters, the people who turned mm -hmm. out and voted for Bill Weld in 2020. And I think that's mm -hmm. a fundamentally different approach and a fundamentally different group of voters than the ones who are being drawn to Haley, who's not attacking Trump, but she's saying, you know, he was he was he was fine in 2016, but we need we need a new generation. We need a younger voice, um, you know, that sort of thing. And, and really being very gen gentle and hands off with her criticisms of him. Um, you know, I think if Christie were to get out, um, you know, I think that would probably boost Haley. I don't think there are many Christie voters whose second choice is Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, then you've got Ron DeSantis, you know, he was po pulling, I think 5% in one of these polls. I think this, the, uh, CNN UNH poll. Um, I don't know that there are many Ron DeSantis voters whose second choice is Nikki Haley. Uh, so if you're, if you're Nikki Haley, you probably, you know, you'd like Christy to get out. Uh, you wouldn't mind Aza Hutchison, who's still in there, getting like one or two percent to get out and endorse <laughs> yeah. you. Um, but you probably want DeSantis to stick around. Uh, you probably mm. figure the guy who's running as Trumpism without Trump um, is probably drawing drawing votes away from Trump and not from you. When does it uh, get crazy? Is it a week from today when all the campaigns will be there? You can't get a, a booth at the Red Arrow Diner. Yeah, when you wake up on the Tuesday after the Iowa caucus, uh, you will discover that uh, your friends and neighbors have covered the state in signs for their preferred candidates. Um, you will hear about uh, which candidate had a you know 3 a.m. landing at Manchester Airport or the <laughs> private right. airfield in in Concord. Uh, that is when the circus comes to town and sets up on Elm Street in Manchester. Um, it's when people bring out the, the livestock with uh, you know shirts and sweaters with candidates' <laughs> right. names on them. Are we going to um, get a Trump it's, it's uh, rally just, on the eve? Have we heard anything about it? I have not heard anything, but that's what he did in 2020. Um, in yep. 2020, uh, he held a rally um, at, a, at an arena in downtown Manchester uh, and basically just sort of um, – he, he didn't dominate – coverage but he took a lot of wind out of the sails of democrats who were hoping that they would have the front page of the union leader mm. and the concord monitor and other local mm. papers to themselves mm. on primary day hey chris i'm looking forward to seeing you up there i appreciate you coming on today chris galdieri with what? two weeks to go saint anselm college political science professor great to see you as we assemble our panel they'll be there too of course rick davis and Jeannie shanzano are with us here our signature panel back together again and I wonder, Jeannie, your thoughts on these polls here, because this is the menu of options. Is Donald Trump going to walk into New Hampshire with a commanding lead, or is Nikki Haley truly nipping at his heels, as uh, this CNN UNH poll would tell us? Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating. You know, when we look at where she has been and where she has come, her star is rising at just the right time. And so I do think Trump really can have a run for his money from Nikki Haley. Of course, the CNN poll, one poll. But again, when you look at her trajectory over time, she really is narrowing this gap. And, you know, it's it's really in keeping with something that I've heard and I'm sure other pollsters have heard, which is when people have been door knocking in places like New Hampshire and South Carolina and elsewhere on behalf of Nikki Haley, they have sometimes heard people who say, I do support the former governor. I'm not sure I want to say that publicly necessarily, because, of course, to go against Trump is to support a Democrat. I mean, that's how it's been laid out. And of course, those people don't feel that way at all. So I keep wondering, do we see a growing silent majority who once this is unleashed and these polls come out and she does 
if she does better in Iowa than expected, comes in a strong two, does that sort of unleash this for her? So I think there's real possibility and momentum with Haley at this point. Rick, I know you're taking the Haley campaign seriously, and you've told us that we all should here in New Hampshire. Does that mean that that you buy into this single-digit spread that we're seeing in one of two polls today? You know, that's that's a pretty aggressive poll. Um, part of what makes me concerned about the <clears throat> UNH poll is Ramaswamy at eight. Um, mm-hmm. We haven't seen Ramaswamy above five since the campaign began. Um, and so uh, that one may be a little too close. Uh, look, the UNH poll, uh, you know, Trump has come down three points and 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 uh, Nikki has gone up two since the last poll UNH took. So the trend is the right trend if you're looking for a closing race. And and I think both of those polls represent a narrowing of the field. And Haley is up 12 uh, since the November poll uh, by UNH. Just to give people a sense of the field, by the way, we've been you know talking about uh, the, the, the two front runners, if you will. It's Trump 39. Uh, in this case, as I mentioned, Haley 32, but then it's Christie 12, DeSantis 5. Uh, to Rick's point, Ramaswamy has eight points in this poll. Rick, do you buy the logic that Chris Galdieri was saying that it's actually good uh, for uh, Nikki Haley to keep Ron DeSantis in this race right now? Yeah, I mean, I th- everything is about the lanes. And when those lanes converge, those votes scatter. And Ron DeSantis, I totally agree with Chris. His vote's going to Trump. Uh, uh, Christie's vote's going to 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 Nikki and when you look at head to heads that I've seen uh it's it's a dead heat and so uh yeah the ideal scenario is Christie gets out and 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 Ron stays in and that mm-hmm. advantages Nikki Haley but of course none of that she can control so she's just got to do the best she can in New, in Iowa and and frankly that may be the worst thing for her because if she beats Ron DeSantis in Iowa, it could force him out of the race and all those votes in New Hampshire go to go to Trump. Find an interesting DeSantis and Nikki Haley will debate tomorrow night in Des Moines. Uh, Jeannie Ramaswamy did not qualify after all the time he spent in Iowa. Is that campaign done? Uh, not according to Ramaswamy. He has been out and so <laughs> active. I think he went to all 99 counties twice, if I understand. So he says he's seeing this thing through and he doesn't care about this CNN debate is what he says. Well, I guess not. We'll see how that goes with only two on the stage tomorrow night. Donald Trump won't be there. He's going to counter program with a town hall on Fox. And so the wheel goes round. We're going to have a lot more with our panel coming up here because the deal on Capitol Hill to avoid a government shutdown. The so-called deal is now hitting the campaign trail. We'll have that next. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
So much for avoiding a government shutdown. We'll see. There are eight legislative days to make it happen, and I'll let everyone know we're going to talk to Congressman Brian Stile coming up at the top of the hour about 40 minutes from now. The Republican from Wisconsin is in the middle of all this as House members return to Washington today with eight legislative sessions to figure out the path forward here. This, of course, would be funding the government, and we've got the staggered or laddered CR in effect now. So the first four bills will expire toward the end of this month and the rest at the beginning of February. We do not have a lot of time to play with, but there was a big deal around this time yesterday, as I told you. Big agreement on top-line spending levels, an agreement between Chuck Schumer and Speaker Mike Johnson, the same exact agreement, or as Jack Fitzpatrick called it, re-agreement, that Kevin McCarthy made with Joe Biden back in June. Now, some say this is progress. Help to avoid a shutdown. Helps the odds. But if you're Ron DeSantis, no way. The governor of Florida, of course, Republican presidential candidate, weighing in. He took video from an interview, wrote around it with a nice post on Twitter to let everybody know this is just top-line spending levels now. This is not the budget. That you're not even real Republicans. This is just selling out uh, everything that they ran on in 2022. You know, they said that they were going to change the way Washington operates. They said that they were going to hold these agencies accountable. You know, that's the thing. The House of Representatives is supposed to, because they're armed with the power of the purse, uh, be the people's redress Hmm. for when government misbehaves. Did you get that? I don't know what Donald Trump is going to say about this either. He's talking to Speaker Mike Johnson, they say, on an almost daily basis. Let's reassemble the panel for their take. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributors, are with us here. Rick, it's an opportunity for candidates, I guess, to make some news if you're on the trail. But what does it mean for the debate here in Washington? Yeah, look, I think that it scrambles the deck a little bit. Uh, The reality is that um, Ron DeSantis has been a fading star for months. Uh, He's trying to find uh, some mojo for his campaign in Iowa at the very last minute. Uh, And there probably aren't a lot of uh, House members wondering what his opinions are on their legislative issues. So he's kind (laughs) of doing this for his own self-interest, his own campaign interests in Iowa, not to actually influence anything in the House of Representatives. And I'm sure the House of Representatives uh, look at it exactly the same way. Well, he's certainly sounding a lot like uh, Representative Chip Roy, who's endorsed Ron DeSantis. Jeannie has been traveling with him uh, in Iowa, and he has said the same thing. Close the border or close the government. It's one or the other. Will other candidates weigh in on this? Yeah. And, you know, here we're seeing exactly what we fear. I mean, yesterday we were kind of optimistic that maybe they could get this thing done in eight days now. But as the clash of 24 and and the budget process come together, it makes it all that much more difficult. And of course, Ron DeSantis is one thing. But to your point, when when Donald Trump weighs in and he has already started talking about the fact he doesn't want to be Herbert Hoover. So let's just get this economic downturn done right now. I mean, this is where we are headed. And I think this is very, very difficult for somebody like Ron Johnson. You just I I feel like reminding Ron DeSantis, if he wants Republicans to control D.C., they've got to win elections right now. Democrats control the House, the Senate, rather, in the White House. And so you got to deal with them. And, you know, Ron DeSantis seems not to want to acknowledge that. And of course, Joe, uh, Donald Trump doesn't either. 
Hoover Hoover thing. It's, I, I don't. So who's Donald Trump? And is he? Did somebody buy him a book? That there's like a maybe a, an American <laughs> history book. He's been. We had the Civil War last weekend. Now this. I don't know. I wonder if Nikki Haley uh, will take a stand on it. She was asked a lot of questions last evening on uh, on Fox. Rick, it was a town hall. They're each getting their turn here. Uh, and Brett Baer, I thought it was pretty interesting because it's an issue that we don't hear anything about. We talk a lot about Donald Trump. We talk a little bit about the border, talk a little bit about the economy. We never talk about the big stuff that that could, in fact, supersede all of these issues like Social Security and Medicare. If you want to have a budget debate, let's talk about that. And I have to admit, it was not lost on me when I heard our own interview be invoked here. We talked to Nikki Haley back the end of August, and that was my question for her at the time. It came up in that town hall meeting on Fox last evening. Just a taste here from Brett Baer as he's talking to Nikki Haley. So, Governor, uh, Governor DeSantis is hitting you for claiming the retirement age is, quote, way, way too low. Retirement he said, age. quote, I don't know why she's saying that. So are you saying that? Where do I you have stand never on that? once mm. said that. Well, wait, I've... wait, wait. In Bloomberg interview. Oh, yeah, that Bloomberg interview. Did you not say that? Let's spin back the tape again to the 24th of August when Nikki Haley joined us here on Bloomberg. It was on Balance of Power on Bloomberg TV. Remember? We don't touch anyone's retirement or anyone who's been promised in, but we go to people like my kids in their 20s when they're coming into the system and we say the rules have changed. We change retirement age to reflect life expectancy. Instead of cost of living increases, we do it based on inflation. We limit the benefits on the wealthy and we expand Medicare Advantage plans. What's the right age there then, Ambassador? Well, I think we have to do the numbers. We've got to figure out what it is. But what we do know is 65 is way too low. And we need to increase that. We need to do it according to life expectancy. 65 is way too low and we need to increase that. I guess Brett Baer was onto something. We appreciate their watching and listening, by the way. And I wonder what the panel thinks about this. Rick, this is not something that's resonating on the campaign trail. How come we're not talking about it outside of these brief moments? You know, I think you know, Republicans and Democrats at like have, have gotten so afraid of mentioning entitlement programs that it never comes up. I mean, wasn't that long ago when John McCain ran commercials in New Hampshire? Part of the run up to his victory in a comeback campaign uh, was all about South, you know, solving social security problems. And hmm. and so now it's like lockbox is back. Uh, you can't touch it. You can't talk about it. Uh, so look. As you point out very responsibly, um, uh, when you don't talk about entitlement reform, you're not talking about really changing government and you're just nibbling around on the edges. And 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 until we find a leader who's not afraid of tackling the hard stuff, uh, we're 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 stuck in that lockbox. I guess that's right. I think he's talking about Al Gore, Jeannie. Are, are Democrats going to be the ones to open the lockbox? You know, I am so proud of Brett Baer for listening to you, Joe, and listening to Bloomberg. And you know who else I think is going to listen is Donald Trump, because as Nikki Haley closes these polls, he will pull out that Bloomberg quote and throw it right back at her. This is, you know, like Rick Scott all over again. And I'll bet the Democrats as well, Joe Biden and the Democrats will hit her on this should she continue rising in the polls. You know, Rick Davis is right. It is, you know, the reality is, good economics on her part, bad politics. This is an absolute loser. This is why Rick Scott walked back from it. Nikki Haley now walking back from it. But you've got her on tape, Joe. So I think they're all going to be pulling that tape. 
I, well, we'll see if they use it. Uh, I'd love to follow up on that conversation with her uh, if the opportunity arises. Uh, we'll see you in Iowa, Madam Ambassador. Rick, no one knows New Hampshire politics better than you. What does Nikki Haley do, or Ron DeSantis for that matter, when they arrive that morning after or even that night of the Iowa caucuses? You've got a week to play with. What do you do with the time? No, it, fundraising is over. So uh, yep. you've got to hit town hall after town hall, public event after public event. The good news is everybody's paying attention. As Chris right. said earlier, all the voters have tuned in. So walking into a cafe, uh, going and doing a town hall, uh, from what I'm hearing on the ground, her town halls are on fire. Her her crowd size is double, tripled, and quadrupled. Uh, and she needs to keep that momentum up. And that means six, eight you know, events a day, a lot of uh, drop-ins. Uh, so uh, she just needs to hope that the roads are clear, the skies are blue, and you know she can work it hard all the way to election day. You know, talking about the weather, we hit this for a minute, Jeannie, and you actually broke my heart a little bit because I could see the pain <laughs> as we look at the forecast for Iowa. Do you know that they're, they're canceling campaign events today because they're getting a foot of snow or something there? Um, this might affect your, your packing plans. It totally has, Joe. I've already been in touch with a friend of mine who's in Des Moines. She said it's freezing. It's going to get worse. I need to go out and get some more hats, gloves. I don't know. Long johns. It's going to be cold. I'm not good with that. <laughs> but it'll be Producer fun. James. Producer James is opening us every morning in our little show chat here with the forecast. I'm going to just look back. Daily Des Moines forecast. Monday, a high, a high of minus four and a low of minus 13. That's not even with the wind chill. But we shall prevail. We're bringing the shows on the road, and we're going to join you from both Iowa and New Hampshire. Six days to Des Moines, two weeks to Manchester. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Hour 2 of Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, alongside Kaylee Lyons, who just walked in the room. It's good to see you because we're we're looking for some news here on the very same story that we were talking about around this time yesterday. Whether we can avoid a shutdown, the House is back today, Yep. which is why we're glad to uh, bring you a conversation in a moment with Congressman Brian Stile. Although, I don't know, I get the sense that maybe he never leaves Washington. Is he one of those <laughs> lawmakers? He's got a family. I know he goes home. Yeah. Either way, um, eight legislative days to figure out a, st- I won't say the word stopgap, mm. because Mike Johnson said he didn't want to do that. He did, yes. That he wouldn't do that. But will he have to? What do you know? Well, Senator John Thune, so this is in the other chamber. Of the course, Senate yeah. may be singing a different tune on this than those in the House, but he says lawmakers likely will need to pass a short-term stopgap to avoid a government shutdown. Okay. So exactly what Mike Johnson said he didn't want to do, and yet knowing you have to reconcile four different appropriations bills between the House and the Senate with potentially conservative policy writers, questions yeah. around the border as right. well, there might not be much of a choice in the matter. You know who just got back from the border is the aforementioned uh, Brian Style. Mm-hmm. We should bring him in now. Kaylee, the congressman from Wisconsin, is with us. Of course, chair of the admin committee. Serves on financial services and uh, a reliable voice here on Bloomberg. Congressman, it's good to see you. Welcome back to reality here. Um, We've been defying odds and logic for weeks and weeks in the House. What do you think about this idea? If there's something like a deal in place, could your speaker get away with a continuing resolution? Would you support it? 
Well, our, our best case scenario is not have to kick the can down the road, but shutting the federal government down benefits no one, hurts a lot of people, and at the end of the day, it costs more. And so I'd rather see us get to a deal. We've been allowing ourselves to kick the can down the road. That's not productive. Hopefully, we have a deal where we can actually fund this year's appropriations bills because it's not only the top line amount of money, which is a cut to non-defense, non-veterans discretionary spending. That hasn't been done in about six years. But it's also the spending priorities that are in there. We're breaking away from the priorities that were loaded in during Democratic one-party control. Well, be that as it may, Congressman, there are plenty of your colleagues who are not satisfied with the top line figures. It seems this House Freedom Caucus certainly isn't. How do you expect Mike Johnson, the House Speaker, to navigate this and keep his job while doing so? Well, a lot of us would like to see the funding continue to go down. Unfortunately, we have a Democrat in the White House and a Democrat uh, run Senate that is going to continue to push back and push for higher spending levels. This is where the deal that was cut under the, the, the FRA is the, the numbers that are before us and getting the overall spending package done. And again, it's not just the top line numbers. It's also the broader policies that are included in the spending bill. Those details have yet to come out. But if we take a full step back, we also have to recognize that we're only having this conversation over about 12.5% of the entire federal spending over the course of a given year. That's right. If we want to really hammer out the broader challenge that we're facing from a spending perspective, we need to look at the 75% of the spending that's on autopilot right now. And I'd love to see us take this moment and really move forward with the debt commission and really force us to have the adult conversation about where we're at from a fiscal perspective. You know, it's funny with all the talk in Washington about uh, aging politicians. We're not old enough to have that adult conversation. It feels like, Congressman, you'd be you'd, your heart would be warmed to know that we actually talked about Social Security and Medicare uh, on this program last hour. And, and the point of the conversation was that no one will talk about it. it it's the third rail. It's in the lockbox. But those are the cards that you're dealt right now. And as you look down uh, the barrel here of a difficult negotiating session, it looks like there's another uprising on the right. The Freedom Caucus does not like it. And now Ron DeSantis, the governor and presidential candidate, is coming out against this agreement between the speaker and Chuck Schumer, the FRA deal. Will that have an impact on the result in the House? I don't know that the presidential politics over the course of the next few weeks will have a significant impact on the negotiations that are going to take place on Capitol Hill. I think at the end of the day, a lot of people are frustrated with where we're at from a spending level, they take it out on the 12.5% of the budget uh, that probably gets the most airtime. It's important that we cut that spending, which we're doing in this. We could have the debate about how far we need to cut it. I'd like to see it go further. But again, we're negotiating with Democrats in the White House and Democrats in the Senate and shutting down the federal government at the end of the day is not a winning policy. At the end of the day, when every time that has been done, the end result is more spending rather than less spending. It's a, it's a path that at the end of the day doesn't lead you to the conservative goal that people are setting out to try to achieve. And yet there are some members of the House who are currently saying shut down the border or shut down the government, no security, no funding, these kind of ideas, Congressman, that would suggest that if the House doesn't get what it wants in terms of border reform, they would like government funding, at least for a, a time, to cease. And you speak of negotiations that have to happen between the White House and the Senate. The White House and the Senate are already trying to iron out a border security deal uh, as part of this supplemental funding request. Can you commit to uh, voting for whatever agreement they come to in the name of 
bipartisan cooperation? Well, I'm hopeful that we see some form of an agreement come out of these negotiations. I want to read it before I commit to it. But there's clearly a need to restructure and reform our border policies. This administration has been very aggressive from day one where they stopped border wall construction to send a global signal that the U.S.-Mexico border is unsecure and individuals are able to cross it. We got to end the abuse of the parole system. We got to end catch and release, reinstate stay in Mexico, immediately restart border wall construction. And if we do that, we could get a significant handle on the border crisis that's playing out, uh, that's impacting communities all across the United States, not just our nation's largest cities. It's impacting smaller communities like a city called Whitewater in Wisconsin in my district, that has 14,000 people and now has roughly estimated by the chief of police, a thousand migrants now living. Where are they living? All, all, all throughout uh, the city, there was, uh, you know, there's housing that was available. Many of these individuals are living uh, in reasonably unsafe living conditions. It's been a huge burden on the school district. Uh, where over 300 students have entered the school district, and again, in this small town, uh, need English as a second language. Uh, some of the dialects some of the students speak, prim- primarily from Nicaragua and Venezuela, don't match some of the Spanish language teachers in the broader area. It's a burden on the police department, uh, and it's a huge challenge. And again, the, the challenge that we see on a lot of our larger media networks that focus in on our nation's largest cities, Chicago, New York, Denver, miss the fact that this is impacting every community in the United States, including smaller communities uh, in Wisconsin, yeah. which is why my well, trip to the border, I think, was so relevant, is we got to change the policies that this administration continues to implement. Let's just stick with that for one minute, because you mentioned parole, which, according to all reports, is the big sticking point here. If you manage to increase funding for security, tighten the definition of asylum and get some of the other elements you're talking about without the parole reform, would that be something that could pass the House? Well, all of these pieces interact together. And again, I want to be able to get to us by where we can read the final negotiation. But reforming the parole system is really important here. And the reason for that is many individuals right now, there's a catch and release policy being pushed by this administration. So after 72 hours of after entering the country illegally, a vast number of these individuals are released with a freedom of movement, with a date to appear in court, often three or four years out. So what we need to do is actually adjudicate these cases on the spot. And the abuse that's occurring is the overwhelming majority of these are not actually valid asylum claims. The challenge is the ability to process those under our current system is delayed often three, four or more years, which exacerbates the problem. Well, there are there is a certain chorus, at least in the House, that is saying H.R. 2 contains many of these policies. Therefore, H.R. 2 should be what passes or something very, very similar to it. Yet we know that the H.R. 2 was actually dead on arrival in the Senate when you passed it months ago. Are are you concerned that there won't be enough Republican members uh, of of the House that are willing to support not just a border deal, but potentially whatever funding agreement, be it a continuing resolution or actual appropriation bills, that once again, it will be Democrats that carry this over the finish line and that as a result, Speaker Johnson is going to be in jeopardy? Well, in, a, in an incredibly narrow majority like we have right now, getting anything done is incredibly difficult. I think people are aware that Speaker Johnson has been dealt a difficult hand and he's negotiating valiantly 
to try to bring the spending down and address the border crisis. I would have loved to have seen the Senate take HR2 and put it on the floor and amend it as they see fit. What the Senate has really done is not allowed this to play out on the floor of the Senate so that people can see where their senators stand as it relates to really important policy provisions. I'd also mention, Kaylee, that the border crisis has gotten significantly worse over the past handful of months. And so the political dynamic in the Senate has changed. And I think there, that is causing a greater sense of urgency and an understanding that action has to be taken. It was just last month that 300,000 individuals illegally entered the United States of America. It's half the population in the city of Milwaukee coming in in just a month. And so we're in a situation where this is untenable. People are becoming more aware of that. And maybe the political dynamic in the Senate is such that we're going to be able to actually get substantive border security across the line. It sure has been seeming like it, Congressman, but Senator Langford was sounded pretty downbeat when he left uh, a briefing with some House members yesterday, and he was specifically concerned uh, about being able to craft something that Democrats could also vote for, knowing that there's going to be an effort starting tomorrow to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary, who's actually at the table with James Langford and the other negotiators here. Is this the right time to be impeaching the secretary, knowing that he's, as Langford said, simply carrying out the policies of this administration? Well, he's done a pretty abysmal job of enforcing border security. He's been less than honest before Congress when he came before us uh, and said in his own words that the border was secure when we know that that is not true. And so I think applying pressure onto the secretary is really important here to get the enforcement of the laws around the books, to put pressure on the Biden administration to change course. And so we're gonna have to continue to push on DHS to change the policies that they're implementing right now. But the one part that I think is, is relevant here is simply removing him doesn't solve the problem wholesale because all it will do is allow a new individual to come in to continue to exacerbate the bad policies of the administration it's why actually passing this from a legislative standpoint at the end of the day is so imperative congressman we could talk to you about uh the border and those who are enforcing or not its security all day but there is actually something else i want to get your take on knowing you sit on financial services and this is an issue that you pay a lot of attention to a spot bitcoin ETF. Rumor has it the SEC could actually approve one or many for the first time ever by the end of the day tomorrow. Would that improve your view of the SEC under Gary Gensler as a regulator? What, what so much of the, the, the broader crypto industry needs is actually simply rules of the road so they can operate and continuing to allow the SEC and other agencies to create policy through enforcement is a really bad practice. So if we are in a position where we're actually allowing companies to be able to operate here in the United States, rather than pushing them abroad to conduct their business, that's a step in the right direction. But broadly speaking, I think we'd be best served by having a set of rules in place that companies can then know that they're operating in the sandbox of regulatory safety so they can do the innovation and development here in the United States of America. Failure to do that will continue to push this development in countries outside the United States, which will have negative long-term consequences. Well, while we're introducing new topics to our conversation here, Congressman, I have to ask you, as the chair of the admin committee, what your thoughts are, and I realize that you don't oversee the Pentagon, but your thoughts on this whole issue involving the whereabouts and the chain of command, the communication or lack thereof that has surrounded uh, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. We've not been able to get answers 
uh, to most any of our questions from the Pentagon here. Uh, there are a lot of folks wondering why days passed without anyone knowing that he had been admitted to the hospital. And I wonder, as chair of a House committee, if you have a plan, for instance, if you were incapacitated or sick, what happens when the chairman cannot attend work one day? What played out at the Defense Department is incredibly concerning, and for a particular period of time, uh, where we have the global challenges that we're facing. It's a clear indication there's a significant lack of communication between the Defense Department and the White House. And I think there needs to be significantly more transparency as to why this occurred. And on the House side, there's a simple chain of command. If, uh, if the chairman wasn't there, the next in line would be in the position to be able to step up uh, and operate. But the, the failure and the lack of communication between our leading defense, um, the, the chairman of defense, uh, back with the White House is concerning. I think there needs to be a lot more transparency about what occurred and why it occurred. Congressman, it's good to see you. Good luck in the debate, and we'd like to stay in touch with you as we learn more. Congressman Brian Style of Wisconsin. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.